it's important to me to make it to heaven. And after we pray tonight, we're going to be talking about the resurrection. I cannot think of a more pleasant topic. Let's bow. Let's kneel if we can for prayer. Our Father in heaven, I ask that tonight that you would make your Bible to be understandable for us, that you would use its words to do the very work that you would choose. And I ask for this gift and for the power of your Spirit, in the name of Jesus, amen. I'd like to begin this evening by an exercise before we get into our Bible study. Our topic tonight is a better resurrection. And um, in the book of Hebrews, I don't know if you realize the two resurrections compared in the book of Hebrews are not the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the wicked. It's in Hebrews 11 where it speaks of the better resurrection. It says there that in the Old Testament there were women of faith that by faith they received their dead raised to life. And then it speaks about a better resurrection. That is, it compares a resurrection like the one Lazarus had in John 11 to the resurrection of the just. Do you see why better applies to that situation? I mean that better is a comparative of two good things. And the resurrection of the wicked isn't a good thing. But the resurrection of someone, if a child died here tonight and was raised to life, wouldn't that be a good thing? But it would be a better thing if that child was resurrected to live forever. So the exercise I'd like to begin with, I wonder if there's anyone here that would raise their hand And I might call on you. In fact, I will call on some of you. Is there someone that you know that has died that you have good reason to expect that you will see because of the resurrection of the just? Is there anyone here who knows? Who is someone, Rachel, that you expect to see? Your grandfather, Pastor Mills. Who's someone, ma'am? I believe I will see my mama and papa. Your mother and your father. Yes, praise the Lord. Anyone else? Someone you expect to see? Yes, sir. Joe Maniscalco. You expect to see? Yes, back here. Your great aunt. Anyone else? You, someone you think you have good reason to expect to see? Yeah. Your older sister. What a blessed gift. And way in the back, I saw a hand. Say? Your mother who passed away yesterday. Anyone else? Someone you expect? Yes. My aunt Evelyn Orser. Evelyn Orser, your aunt. Anyone else you can think of that you think you have good reason to expect? Yes. My 19-year-old niece, Hannah, who died in the Lord. Your 19-year-old niece, Hannah. Isn't the resurrection a beautiful topic? It was six months and about a week ago, I was speaking at the, I want to call it the General Youth Conference (laughs) in Minneapolis, and I had there a helper. You know how in the sessions there's someone to help with the various speakers? My helper's name was Luke Privet, and he was diligent in his assistance. As I was leaving that youth conference, Luke was trying to purchase an audio CD of one of the presentations that he had missed. He didn't have the proper change, and so I was able to help him there. That was probably about three hours before Luke passed away in a car accident. On the way home from that conference, it was in the ice and snow. I had known Luke for two years, 
and I have good reason to expect that I will see him after the first resurrection. Is there anyone else that would like to mention someone you expect you'll see? Yes, in the back. Your father and your brother. It's a beautiful gift. Yes. Sangha. Seth Hawk. If I or Hawks. Cox. Thank you, Seth Cox. Anyone else would like to mention someone? Yes. Pastor Van my brother. A pastor, your brother-in-law, Van. I think it would be good, and ma'am, you want to mention, <laughs> your son. I think it would be good for us to do this kind of exercise now and again. You remember, it does say in the Bible that we should comfort one another with the words about the resurrection. And it's just as a joy to think about it. I mean, when you look up the word resurrection in your Bible, it starts showing up mostly in arguments. You remember that? It's not just arguments between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Paul started an argument over it himself in the book of Acts, and he regretted it later. Resurrection shows up a lot in arguments, and it could for us become a very doctrinal subject. But it was intended to be a very warm, life-giving, hopeful subject, and it can be. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're looking at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope, listen carefully, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our opening passage tonight indicates that the hope that I have, what makes my life bearable, what gives me a joy, the way that the Father gave me that hope, is hope a salvational issue? Have you read that in the book of Romans, that we are saved by hope? And maybe you've seen the other side of that same coin, that the devil knows that heaven is worth so much that no one that believes in heaven would stop trying to make it there unless they thought their case was hopeless. And so the devil has worked so diligently to convince men that there is no hope. And what has the Father done to give us a hope? The resurrection of Jesus is the method God has used to give me a hope. There are many ways that works. We'll mention a few and look at them in the Bible, but let's just think about it. The fact that a man could be raised to life is evidence of the creative power of God's Word. If God can take an entirely dead, I mean a corpse, and bring it to life, then whatever spiritual ails I have, I have good reason to expect that God can change those. He doesn't have to depend upon on how little I've degenerated. I mean, if all resurrections happened a few seconds after death, then maybe you could imagine resurrection is just giving life to a body, but most resurrections are going to happen when the material has entirely decomposed. And that to me is an encouragement, an idea that God is not dependent on whatever spiritual strength I have to do what he needs to do in my life. Let's just mark down our first point. The resurrection of Jesus is the means to an end. And the end mentioned in 1 Peter is a living hope. A living hope in me. I have a hope of seeing Luke, but I also have a hope myself of living forever because of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, there is a difference between the better resurrection and some of the other betters we've heard this week. I'll explain. I want to partake of the better covenant. 
I think it's the only one that can get someone to heaven. I want to partake of the better sacrifice. It's the only one that can really save me from my sin. I want to have part in those better promises, the ones that promised forgiveness and a blotting out of sins, not on my own promises that I know I can do it, I will be faithful to you, God. But my heart really is not set for me on having part in the first resurrection. I would rather have no resurrection at all. I really don't want to die. But if I do die, surely I want to have a resurrection on this side of the thousand years. You know, if we talk about better resurrections, there's more than one on this side of the thousand years. There's the one mentioned in Daniel 12 and the one mentioned everywhere else in the Bible. If I had to choose between the two, I'd rather the one in Daniel 12. But I'll just tell you what I've read in the book, The Great Controversy. If I set my heart on doing the work of the three angels, on giving this message to the world, if I live in view of the second coming of Jesus, if I put my life into that, that channel, and then in the line of duty I fall, I die, God has determined that the devil will not be able to rob me of the thing that I've set my heart on, namely of seeing Jesus come back in the clouds of heaven. The special resurrection is special for a reason. Those who have set their heart on the advent will get to see it. And I am so encouraged by this better resurrection that there's nothing that you or others or demons can do to me, not misfortune or otherwise, that can rob me of seeing Jesus return. I'm so thankful for the better of those two resurrections. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. It is possible to say the truths of the Bible without reading them, but the power isn't in the words that I would use, but in the words that God has given. I guess I'm speaking right now to the speakers in this audience. I'm speaking to those of you who, when you go home, will speak and teach in your Sabbath school, that to whatever extent you stick close to this book and have people read it, you're having them read words of life. And when you read it to them, you're reading to them words of life. And when you paraphrase what it says, those aren't words of life. Luke 20 and verse 35. But they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. I'm not speaking tonight at all about marriage. But do you notice in the first half of this verse that there's a connection between the resurrection and the judgment? That is, those who take part in the first resurrection, they were accounted worthy to take part in that resurrection. Can you see that in the verse? And it might be a good question to us, on what basis can we be accounted worthy to take part in the first resurrection? Turn with me one page forward, maybe it's on the same page for you, Luke 21, and we're looking at verse 36. Luke 21, 36 says, Watch ye therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all the things excuse me, these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Of the two verses, this is the one I prefer. I would rather be accounted worthy to never die. But I really don't think the conditions for the two are different. What is the condition for standing before Jesus when he returns? Do you see it in the verse? What, what are the conditions? 
It's to watch and to pray continuously. The word watch was one that was, it was in that camp of ambiguous words to me. I mean, words that I used and heard but didn't really have a concrete idea of what they meant. If you have words like that, I would just suggest that you take hours or minutes and devote your energies to Bible study until you can put a meaning to those words because it makes the Bible so much more meaningful. Now, I'm telling you that precious thought. I forgot the word that I was speaking about. Watch. Thank you. Habakkuk 2.1 is the passage that explains what it means to watch. It says, stand ye in the tower and watch, or Habakkuk says, I will set me in the tower and I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. Just before that in chapter 1, Habakkuk gets into questioning with God, God, why do you allow the wicked to prosper? And he wasn't satisfied, Habakkuk wasn't satisfied with the idea that, for example, God was punishing the wicked with the Babylonians. Because he said the Babylonians themselves are wicked. And so he was asking God these perplexing questions, the ones that bothered him. And after asking God those questions, he realized it really isn't appropriate for people to speak to God quite the way that he was doing it. Can you tell by the 2 verse 1 that he expected to be reproved? When he said, I will set me in the tower, I will watch and see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am reproved. In the Bible, one of the sad patterns is that there are men, a number of them, that live an exemplary life up to a point, and then they do what all men do, they make some blunder. I'm thinking of three kings in a row. Isaiah was one of them, Azariah. And at the point of making a blunder, God does for them what he does for us. When we make blunders, he set about to correct them. He sent them a prophet. And in those three stories in a row that I'm thinking of right now, each one of those kings made the same mistake. Though he had lived a good life up to this point, when he was corrected, he didn't like it. He turned against God's messenger and became more or less an enemy of God's truth after that. We're in danger, and so we ought to watch. Not only watch to see what he will say, but watch to see what we will answer when we are reproved. His promise, Proverbs 1, 23, he said, Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit, unto you. I will make known my words unto you. Amen. Our second point tonight is that if we're going to take part in the first resurrection, we're going to have to be accounted worthy. The resurrection itself is part of the judgment. To be accounted worthy to stand before the Lord when he returns, two conditions in Luke are that we are to watch and to pray consistently. And do you suppose if Satan was fighting against you and me that he would aim right there to put some sort of intermittence in our prayers or in our attention to our reactions to God's correction? Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. The Bible is full of practical instruction. There are some parts of practical instruction so clear in the Scripture that it must be remarkable to angels that we do not obey what Jesus said to do. I'm thinking particularly of a contrast between this passage and the foot washing service. I mean, Jesus gave us that experience, the ordinance of humility, and you can understand that we need to do this He's asking us to do it, that blessed and happy are those that do it. If you read carefully the passage, but it's not nearly as explicit as what we're about to read. And yet, what we read here, I think, is not nearly as well done. Luke 14, verse 12. 
Then said he also to him that bade him, When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither your relatives, nor your rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again, and a recompense be made thee. Jesus really wasn't saying that you shouldn't have special meals with your friends. In fact, he had special meals in the Gospels with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. But he was indicating that if you're trying to do a work of service or charity, don't aim at this direction because you get no reward for this. The reward you get for having a meal with your friends is the fellowship of your friends. But if you want to do an act of service for Jesus, how to do it is in the next verse. But when you make a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. And thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee. For thou shalt be, listen carefully, recompensed. What does it say? At the resurrection of the just. Do you know that you can make that resurrection sweeter? You can brighten up the prospects of your first resurrection by investing in service to those who cannot recompense you. And the service recommended here is intended to win souls. I'm thinking of my dear wife, Heidi. You see her with me almost any time that I'm not up here speaking to you. You know, she invites students from the academy where we work to come to our house, and they eat with us. My experience is that it's much easier to win their hearts, to teach them spiritual truth, when they've had that kind of experience, than it would be any other way. Don't you think this is good, a good thing to do? And suppose you lose a little investment because the people you invite over this way don't invite you back. Pray tell, when do you get recompensed? If you make it, it will be at the resurrection of the just. It isn't a wholesome thing for people who have chosen to do whatever Jesus asks to entertain doubts about whether or not they're going to make it. It's not wholesome. And so I love to share with audiences Amos 9.9. I did it earlier this week. It's about the shaking. I don't mind if you turn there. It's Amos 9, verse 9. And since I hear half of you doing it, I'm going to turn there. I still have to say the Minor Prophets to myself, and I'm trying to find passages in the Minor Prophets. Amos 9 and verse 9. The Bible says, For lo, that means pay attention or behold. For lo, I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations, like as corn is sifted in a sieve, yet shall not, what does it say, the least grain fall upon the earth. What I understand from this metaphor of the shaking is that when a farmer needs to separate the chaff from the grain, that is so important to him that he's willing to lose a few grains. And so he throws the grain and the chaff up the wind blows, the chaff goes away, most of the grain comes down, and he keeps what's valuable, and he isn't too concerned about the fact that some of the grain falls off, he loses some. God said it's a good illustration in some respects, that it's also very important to God to separate the chaff from the wheat. But the illustration breaks down in this one respect, God will not lose even one grain, real grain. In other words, the shaking does not shake out the weakest Christians. It shakes out unconsecrated persons. Isn't that encouraging to you? Yes. 
Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 5. It was a question to me that I asked myself just to help me learn why people have been resurrected on this earth to die again. You know, my observation is that God doesn't resurrect old people to die again. I don't mean to make fun of anything that way. Really, I think that if you're faithful and you're old, you don't want to be resurrected to die again. I mean that resurrection is a rest from our labors. Have you read that in Revelation? And if we're faithful to that point, it marks an end to our trial. I mean to our probation. And isn't it beautiful to be secured by the end of your probation? So that death really isn't tragic for Christians. I'm afraid the way Luther said it might be too funny for a solemn meeting, but he didn't mean it to be a joke. But still, I'm not going to say it. But you can find it in the great controversy. It's there. John 5, verse 19. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. It helps you understand part of the gospel more than we usually do. We think about the first part, that Jesus could not do anything of his own. We think of it like this, that without the power of the Father, Jesus wasn't capable of doing. I mean, the human Jesus. So we think of it like this, that if I don't have the power of God living inside of me, I can't do any good thing. But in the verse, there's quite a bit more to it than that. It's not only that Jesus wanted the power of the Father, he required the model of the Father. That is, he wanted to do what he saw the Father do. And if he didn't see the Father do something, he didn't want to do it. I'm telling you, John 5 condemns innovation in religion. What was it that Jesus wanted to do? It was the same thing that he saw his Father do. Now, I, someone I'm sure misunderstood what I meant by innovation. I don't mean like thinking things through and using the mind that God has given us. And if you don't know what I mean, probably you should just ask me. But I'm making this point that if we would understand that not only are we powerless to do anything good, we're also powerless to know which good things to do. And what we need from, from the scriptures, what we want from the scriptures is to observe the things that God has done, that Jesus has done, and to do those kind of things. Verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that himself doeth. The Father loves the Son, and what does he do as a result? <coughs> he reveals his activity to the Son, so the Son can imitate his activity. Does the Father love me? For the same reason, he reveals to us his activity. He shows us what he's up to. There is a book that has been written by Graham Maxwell. I really don't like the book. I'm talking about servants or friends. I mean because it compares God in a way that is demeaning to him, as if he doesn't mean what he says but it hinges on a verse that is really in the Bible. And as far as it's in the Bible, it's a beautiful passage. It's that Jesus says he would rather be our friend than to have us just be a servant. And the contrast between the two, of course, is that the servant does whatever he's told, but the friend understands what, what the master wants to accomplish. His heart is with the thing, not just his actions. The Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself doeth, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Verse 21, For as the Father raises up the dead and quickeneth them, 
Even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. Why does Jesus resurrect persons according to this passage? It's because the Father resurrects persons. It's because the Father gives life that Jesus gives life. This is what the Bible means when, it said, when Jesus said in John 11, I am the resurrection. He meant that he is life, unborrowed, underived, original. That is, that he is the giver of life. And that's what resurrection is. It's the gift of life. Verse 22. For the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honors not the Son honors not the Father which hath sent him. If you'll read these verses in the next three or four, you'll understand that Jesus is saying there is a connection between the judgment and the resurrection. That since the Father raised men to life, Jesus raises men to life. And in raising men to life, since Jesus is going to raise men to life, for that reason, the Father gave him the judgment. Because raising men to eternal life is the execution of the judgment. And the Son will determine which ones he is going to resurrect to life. In verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that hears my word and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. When he said, and now is, that would be Lazarus. Just a day or so after this, I'm guessing how many days are in between chapter 5 and 11, I really don't know. So Jesus resurrected Lazarus. Verse 26, For as the Father has life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Read on with me. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, and the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Maybe it would help us to go to Hebrews to understand this better. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews 9, verse 27. We're looking for a reason for the connection between... I don't even know how to say what I want to show you. I'll just show it to you. Hebrews 9 and verse 27. The Bible says, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. It is because of the death of Jesus that every man, nearly every man, is going to be resurrected. Of course, it isn't every man. Enoch was never resurrected, and Elijah was never resurrected. And maybe there are other cases. But isn't it generally true that wicked and righteous both are going to be resurrected? It's not sufficient in view of what has been done for our salvation for us to simply receive chastisement here and die. If we spurn the blood of Jesus that has begotten us to a lively hope and turn away from the beautiful gifts that have been given to us, we are injuring Jesus in a criminal way. The Bible calls it crucifixion. And it makes us intensely guilty. Here in Hebrews also, turn back a couple pages. A couple pages, and we're looking at chapter 6. <coughs> Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. 
Isn't this a helpful passage to know what the basic foundational parts of Christianity are? What do they include from verse 1? Repentance and faith. If someone indicates that one or either of those is not essential or significant, they just don't get it at all. Verse 2, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. I can see Satan attacking the very fundamentals of Christianity when I read these two verses. It's obvious doctrinally how he attacks the doctrine of the judgment. And that's not the, con the content of our message tonight. I do need to speak to the issue of baptism. Do you realize that in the book of Acts that there are many baptisms? That with the exception of the very beginning of the book of Acts, when thousands are baptized in a day, that even though the baptisms are conducted by people like Peter and Paul, the world's most notable evangelists, they typically number one or two or four or eight or a small group. And there just isn't anything more than 20. If you ever are part of evangelism and you feel like you're inadequate, at least know that that's how it is when the power of the Holy Spirit was working through mighty men to do a mighty work. It's how it is in the book of Acts. There's something more to it there. Not once in the book of Acts do we have any reason to believe that someone is baptized who has not had significant instruction in the ways and works of God. Sometimes someone will say, the Ethiopian eunuch, no, you haven't read the story well enough. I mean, this man traveled, he's a busy, important man with tons of money-type business. Do any of you know how difficult it is to get away from money-type business? That man with money-type business left it, made a long journey to attend a feast in Jerusalem. Don't you know he was a spiritual man? More than that, on a chariot ride, I know for myself that I have often taken books with me when traveling with the very good intention of reading them while I'm traveling. But when someone is driving or flying, it doesn't happen nearly as much as I intended that I read one of those books. You're talking about a man who on a chariot ride was studying not something like the Gospels or 1 John. He was studying obscure prophecies that he didn't quite understand. Do you understand this was a devoted person? And he cared enough to ask questions. So I know he's not a good example. Most of them were, were Jews or people who had been instructed by Jews or people who were told were devout. And then maybe the next closest exception would be the Philippian jailer. But he knew more than nothing. He then don't look at you when you first appear in their country and ask you, sirs, what must I do to be saved? <laughs> you know, there's a lot of other people they could have asked a similar question to. But they knew who to ask, and they knew what kind of words to use to ask. And there had been Christian missionaries in Philippi for quite some time before that experience. I guess I'm communicating that when we take the work of John the Baptist, where the Bible says plainly, and with many similar words, he exhorted the people, that's after saying that each one was called to a higher standard not to violate the Ten Commandments. Soldiers weren't even allowed to kill people. Tax collectors weren't even allowed to steal. I mean, it was a high calling he called them to. With many similar words, he exhorted them, and then he baptized them. And then in Acts chapter 2, it says right there plainly, and with many more words, they were given instruction. And who were these people listening? They were those that knew enough about the laws of God to already be coming to Passover in obedience to those laws. If you email me, my email address is canvassing at canvassing.org. I'll send you a Bible study on baptism. Now, I'm going to tell you the conclusion of the thing I came to right now. 
we've done the right thing as the Adventist church to require significant commitment to the Ten Commandments. I mean to require that people know what they're getting into when they enter into covenant with God. It just isn't right to ask people to make a promise when they don't even know the terms of the promise. And the sign of baptism is the sign of entering into the new covenant experience. It's a covenant to have the law written in the heart. Would it, I feel like going on, but I know I shouldn't. So do you understand what I'm saying, what I'm attacking right now? It is this bogus idea that you should baptize someone just because they ask you to baptize them because they say they believe in Jesus when they don't understand truly what is involved in making a covenant with God. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15, we're looking at verse 21. For since by man it came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. I've said it before, but I'd like you to see this verse. It's probably the best one in Scripture that speaks of it. It's the idea that when Adam sinned, you know, it's not true that I sinned when Adam sinned. But it is true that Adam's sin was a disaster for me. <laughs> I mean that Adam was granted probation. The probation was in the form of a tree in the midst of the garden. Those trees now, I can just imagine other planets of intelligent beings that have trees like that and that, that they don't have any thought of touching them. And that tree was a special gift. I'm not talking about the tree of life. I mean the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a beautiful gift. It was a gift that allowed Adam and Eve to develop moral character, to cultivate moral power by making right decisions. That isn't what they did. And when that gift was taken away, what Adam and Eve lost was their probation. I mean, that was their probation, and when it was taken away, their probation was gone. Except the fact that Adam, his disgraceful failure was redeemed by Jesus. And what Jesus gave back to man was probation. And it came in the form of a life that ends in death and is followed by a resurrection from the dead. Because if Adam lost my probation, then there's no need for me to pay for I didn't have any moral responsibility. But if my probation has been given back to me, with that probation has come a moral responsibility and therefore everyone is resurrected. First the righteous, and afterwards, what does it say in verse 24? Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. It's ironic how literal that is. I mean that the wicked for eternity are ashes under our feet. Go back just a few verses. I'd like you to look at verse 17. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, you are yet in your sins. I don't think that anyone is really advocating that Jesus wasn't raised. But Paul's argument goes like this. If you say that there's no resurrection, then you're also saying that Jesus wasn't resurrected. But when I read verse 17, I gather something for me. And that is that it's the resurrection of Jesus that makes my faith useful, that allows me to have victory over my sins. 
Can you see it in the logic of verse 17? Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. We listed those names before. It's because of the beauty of the resurrection of Jesus that there's hope for those. But listen carefully to verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. It's a terrible thing if Satan convinces someone here that their case is hopeless. They will lose all motivation to try to make it. If Satan has told any of that to you, you should know it's just not true. And we've talked about the evidence. It's the resurrection. But there is another terrible thing Satan does. It's to tell you that there's plenty of good hope for you. You're just fine. And just as it would be a most miserable situation to think you're going to heaven when you're not, isn't that what verse 19 is speaking of? That it would be most miserable to expect heaven when you're not going there. Jesus said to the Laodicean church, among other problems, you are miserable. That is, as a people, we are a class that we have a hope, but it's not the lively hope of 1 Peter 1.3. It's the false hope of 1 Corinthians 15, 19. A hope that's founded on something less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It doesn't think it's founded on anything less than that. It just doesn't understand how the blood works. Our last passage tonight is John chapter 11. John chapter 11 shows that Jesus taught many things that aren't mentioned in Scripture. John 11, and we can just notice for a minute what it says in verse 11. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth. I do take heart in the idea that Jesus has friends that he speaks that way of those that have been close to him, that if I draw near to God, that he will draw near to me. Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may awake him out of his sleep. This is the verse that helps you understand what it says in verse 26, that whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Not meaning that they're never going to stop breathing, but meaning that that only counts in this passage as being a sleep. And they're never going to die the real thing. Look at verse 23. Jesus said unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha said unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. The summary is that when we think about resurrection, even that, we don't want to be like the sacrifice of Cain. I mean, who is the resurrection? Jesus is the only unborrowed original source of life. And whenever I think resurrection, I want to think life-giving. When I think life-giving, I want to think Jesus. He is the source of life. And divorcing the beauty of the resurrection from the beauty of the source is just a spiritual mistake that robs us of the power of that resurrection in our life. Let me summarize what we've said tonight. In the Bible, resurrection is often connected with argument. It's not good. Jesus never entered into argument over resurrection. Paul did it once and regretted it the next chapter. We would do well, instead of thinking of it as a doctrinal topic, to think of it in connection with our loved ones who have died. We would do well to think of it like this, that I could die, and I want to live in such a way that if there was a meeting like this, 
that someone could raise their hand and say, Eugene. That there would be a good hope in them that would encourage them in view of the resurrection. I really don't want to be resurrected. I mean, I'd rather never die. But if I do die, I would rather choose the first of the two good resurrections. I want to see Jesus come back. And towards that end, I want to devote my energies to preparing for his coming, to giving the message of his coming to the world. There's a connection there. But I will be content to be part of either one of those good resurrections. And the second one, it looks like, has the same condition as just being alive when he comes back. It's to watch and to pray continuously. To watch what? Particularly to pay attention continuously to what he says. More than what he says, to pay attention to how I respond when he corrects me. And if I will do that, I can meet the conditions of repentance and faith, which are the foundations of spiritual things. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. It, his resurrection gives me good hope that God can change me no matter what my problems are. That's the kind of lively hope I want. I'm desperately, terribly afraid of a false hope. It would be most miserable to expect that I'm going to make it when I'm not. And then the other topic or two, we ought to be inviting people to eat at our house in an effort to save their souls. And knowing that even Jesus put out the incentive that that would brighten the prospects at your resurrection. And we want to realize that baptism is a symbol of death and resurrection. It's a symbol of a new life, but it's also the symbol of entering into a covenant with God. And we just wouldn't want anyone to make a promise that they do not really understand. In the Bible, the examples are they understood it well, and our work should be the same. We don't want to innovate in religion. What Jesus did wasn't only what the Father gave him power to do. It was what he saw the Father do. I want to be like that. Amen. As far as possible, let's kneel for a prayer. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for the friendship that you had with Lazarus. I thank you for the beauty of a lively hope. I thank you for the hope I have that I will see Luke in the resurrection. The hope that many have here that they will see someone that, that you worked, that you converted, that you empowered to live a holy life. I claim that promise that blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On him the second death will have no power. And I ask that you would fulfill your promise, that you would finish the work that you have started in us. We ask for these gifts in the name of Jesus. Amen.